Amen. Uh, if you would turn to Second Peter chapter three, I want to come in for, I believe, a landing today, and <clears throat> I think we'll finish it up. If you look at your notes, there's a bunch of dates. It says, what do the following dates plus about 240 prior to them have in common? So this is a pop quiz. You can write your answer in on the line if you want to venture a guess. So think about what do those dates have in common with about 240 others? If you have an idea... I'll come back and ask you in just a moment. Okay? Look at them. Hmm, what could they be? Okay, does anybody want to get a star? Want to be the head of the class? Want to be a show-off? Probably not now, but uh, um, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said it that way. Does anybody have an idea what those dates are about? End of the world? What? A yes. Yes, end of the world when God's... Basically, those are predictive dates, the most recent that gained prominence of when Christ would return. Now, if you, if you go online, you can see that there is a well over 240 others uh, throughout history that have been prognosticated by people. Now, I'm sure there's been many more uh, that aren't, but these are like significant ones. Uh, back in 19... Um, uh, back, there was one in 1988 uh, that this guy wrote a book, and he said 88 reasons why Jesus is going to return in 1988. He didn't. Well, I arrived here in uh, 1992, and I'd been here a few months, and in September there was another one. The guy wrote another book. I think he probably needed some more coin. And so he wrote uh, 92 reasons why Jesus is going to return in 1992. Uh, I was up in Seattle, Washington in May on the weekend of May 11th. And uh, on Thursday, there was a, um, a newspaper. Uh, have you ever heard of Harold Camping? I think he was over in Oakland. He was kind of a prophet, pastor, preacher, teacher, so to speak. Spent a lot of time talking about the coming of Christ. Well, he took out a full-page ad. His ministry took out a full-page ad to say that Jesus was coming on May 21st. Now, imagine the cost of that for... Um, you're taking out a full-page ad in USA Today. And so he promoted this. Well, I happened to be in Seattle that weekend. And so on, on that morning, I woke up May 21st, and the first thing I did was I called Trina. Because I figured if, if anybody's going to be gone, it's going to be Trina. <laughs> you know, I... Me? Maybe not. But Trina would be. And as she was there, I said, wow, okay, well, when you go to church, you know, check out the crowd and see, just in case, check out who's there and who's not there, and I'll call you later, and I called her back, and she said, no, it's pretty normal, all the people that we would expect, you know, were still there, blah, 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 and we were kidding around, of course, but um, that's what happens, is we get all these prognosticators, and, and here's the problem with it. We, we've seen for thousands of years, or a couple, uh, probably close to 2,000 years, people have been doing this. And you know what? They're always wrong. And the church goes through these seasons. I call it a silly season where it leads to scoffing. Scripture, Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 36. He said, now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son. Jesus said, I don't even know when I'm coming back. 
Only the Father knows. It seems pretty clear, but people still set dates. I, I, I kind of wonder why. Are they hoping for bragging rights in eternity? You know, do they, do they want to be the head of class? Maybe think they'll get a star from God. But I don't think that they would get it right even if they got it right. I think God would change it by at least a day or a month or a year just so nobody throughout eternity could brag about it. I mean, could you imagine living with that person? Yeah. Nobody knew, but I figured it out, you know? Um, so we, 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 we have a tendency, so many of these people, and I'm sure they're well-intentioned and well-meaning, but they set these dates, and it just kind of leads to these scoffing. Oh, yeah, another, you know, another Christian kook, you know, trying to talk about this thing that's going to come. Now, hear me. I believe that Jesus is coming back. I have no doubts about it because the Bible talks about it. I live with this sense of Maranatha. Maranatha, the Lord is coming or come, Lord. It is a reality that I want to remind us of today because Peter makes it a key point um, in chapter 3 as he concludes his teaching to the church. But I want us to have a sober and a sense of understanding that we believe in it, but you know what? God's the one that ultimately determines and dictates it. I think it's a big deal when Jesus says, I don't even know. There's going to come a day, though, when the Father's going to tap me on the shoulder and say, now is the time. Return. Now, I believe this, too, that before he comes, that there's a few things, well, at least one thing that has to take place is, is this thing called the tribulation. Now, I don't want to get into a lot of eschatology or study of the last things today, but I believe that that will predate the coming of Christ. And then you get into the whole theological implications of pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, which I just noted briefly last week. I believe on the basis of Peter's teaching in chapter 2 and, and really kind of the, the, the thematic thread throughout Scripture that I, I lean toward pre-trib. There's a lot of people that go mid and there's a lot of people that go post, but I think that God, whenever he unleashed judgment throughout the Scriptures, he always moved his people out of the way of it. And I think he'll do that again. It doesn't mean that he's not gonna, we're not going to face issues and problems and difficulties in life, but I don't think that we will come under the judgment of God. Isn't it interesting, though, and I'm, I'm just kind of waiting to see how many you know, people get really carried away with all of this. What do we got right now? We got rumors of war. We got war. We got earthquakes. We got floods. We got all of these cataclysmic things going on. Is this a precursor? I don't know. I'm sure some people will really get on the bandwagon of it, but it could be. It could be warning signs. I don't know, but I'm not going to set dates. Here is what the bottom line is when I talk about this is be ready. Live a life that's ready, and I think that that's what Peter is really focusing on, and he wants us to see and look at today because he's going he's gonna to teach and he's going to remind these people that God has his own timetable, and it's totally different from ours. It often takes a lot longer than our timetable does too because we are, a, we are a people that in our culture now, we want everything instantaneously. We want it to happen now. And God says, I don't operate on your time and space sequence or continuum. And God is patient. And because God is patient, he says, I want you to be patient with others. And so I want us to look today at what, just what, what Peter's going to say because as he comes in for a landing, he is reminding these people Throughout this book, what's really important, he's ready to lay his life down. And he says, I want you to live in a way that whatever you do, wherever you go, people are going to see that you've been touched by the living Christ. 
And that like Paul said in Philippians 2, that there's this sense of that we hold the word of Christ, not the not just the word, of, not the Bible up, but we live in such a way that people go, wow, I can navigate my life by how they are and how they live and what they say and what they do. Last week we noted that Peter seemed to have an edge um, and this kind of almost combative state when he was talking about false teachers and false prophets and false people beginning to infuse their teaching and their life into the church and to begin to lead people astray. Now, as he comes to chapter 3, I think we'll see a little bit different tone where he's more loving and he's more encouraging, yet he graciously confronts something in these lives of people. It's either false teaching or just simply scoffers who begin to scoff and say, yeah, well, I thought Jesus was going to come. That's great theology. But they haven't seen him yet. And so, and so Peter starts to talk to these people about a virtue that probably most of us understand and need to grow in our life too. Does anybody struggle with patience, with, with impatience? You get impatient? That's what Peter's going to talk about. He says, I want you to be patient because the Lord's patient. Someone defined patience this way. It's something you admire in the guy behind you but detest in the driver ahead of you. <laughs> Isn't that true? How many people's dreams go unfulfilled due to a lack of patience and inability to hang in there? How many people make premature or impulsive decisions on sundry reasons because of impatience? A lot of people do that. Patience is one of those things that probably needs to be nurtured in most of our lives to some degree. Because you know what our life is, and we forget this, but it's, it's a perpetual cycle and series of waiting. You become a child. What are your parents? Oh, I can't wait till he walks or she walks. I can't wait till they talk. I can't wait till they start school. I can't wait till they graduate from high school. I can't wait till they get to college. And you start to feel, you understand that too. I can't wait to drive. I can't wait to get to high school, get out of high school, get to college, get out of college, get married, have babies, get rid of the kids, you know, have a, you know, have a happy little nest. And, 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 but it's, it's all these series of cycles that we're always moving toward. And, and, and sometimes we can get impatient in them. And things can take longer than we expected or hoped. And then we begin to question, can God really be trusted? And that's what Peter's coming to today. He says, if you want to keep your life on track, if you want to know the way to go, if you want to stay with it, don't ever forget that God is patient. And he calls us to live in that realm of patience. So let's pick it up in uh, chapter 3. Again, Peter's coming in for a landing. He's, he's getting ready to check out. So these are kind of his last will and testament. He says, dear friends, <clears throat> this is how the second letter that I've written to you, this is now the second letter that I've written to you. Obviously, it was first Peter was first. In both letters, I want you to stir up your sincere, your pure understanding by way of reminder. Again, we've talked about this. Peter keeps reminding these people. He says, a lot of the things I'm telling you, you know, but I've got to remind you of them so you don't have a vision leak concerning them. I want you to recall the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through the apostles. So he's kind of referring back now even to, to, to chapter 1 and to chapter 2. In chapter 2, he says, I don't, he's really saying, don't, don't listen to the false prophets, leaders, teachers. Listen to the prophets of old. And then he refers back to chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, where he talks about the word that come via the prophets. Trust in those things. They're stable. They're concrete. 
And he says, above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days. They'll be scoffing. You know what a scoffer is? It's just something, yeah, sure, okay, whatever. Yeah, whatever. You kidding me? He says, be aware of those kind of people. They're following their own evil desires, saying, where is this coming that he promised? He says, ever since our, our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. This is the, kind of the articulation of the theory of uh, uniform, uniform, uniformitarianism. It's, it's one of the theories upon which the evolutionary theory is built upon that says all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. That anything happening today or in history is seen in this uniform pattern and it's always taken place since creation. Now, we do have some of those things, absolutely. We can count on the seasons and changing seasons. But the point of it, and it has to do with, with, with geology and, and science and everything, but what it does is it denies cataclysmic or judgment that could change the world in different ways, such as the flood. If you wanted to go online and look about this, books on it, um, but, but here is really kind of a delineation where Peter is kind of, they didn't have this thought necessarily then, but he's saying, listen, things change. And he goes on to say here in verse 5, they deliberately overtook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water through water, and through these the world of that time perished when it was flooded. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Remember, um, Peter talked in chapter 2 about Noah, and he talked about Lot. Now he comes back, and he wants to reiterate this whole thing. That he says, listen, God has been at work. He created everything, and he's been at work in creation since the beginning. And he didn't just create and step out of it and spend the rest of his life on a heavenly veranda watching He's involved. He's been involved in judgment. He judged, he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. He judged the days of Noah. And what he's trying to say is not everything is the way it has been because it's going to happen again. We deal with a lot of people today. They say, well, I couldn't, you know, I didn't, there's no evidence for this flood. There's no evidence for whatever. And Peter's reiterating, no, there is. And you can go... Uh, online, or you can, there's a couple of great books out that you can read about it. And what he's really trying to say is that because Peter's arguing that because God has been involved in this since the beginning for all time, it's going to happen again. We've seen it in the past. There's evidence for it, and we're going to see it again in the future. Notice the verbiage. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Um, you can't forget about this truth. And Peter says, I don't want you to forget about it either. We live in a culture that really doesn't like this truth. We want a loving God that loves, but that has no wrath. Peter dealt with it then. 
and most of you know, I'm not a, quote, hellfire and brimstone preacher. Uh, I probably should speak about it more just as a reminder that there's a reality here. And it comes into play throughout this chapter, and I'll come back to it in a minute. But Peter goes on. See, people read that, and they go, yeah, see, oh, there we go. I'm going to preach hellfire and brimstone, you know. There's God. He's got his bony finger pointed, and he's going to come out with his day of wrath. And then they forget about the context where Peter continues, and he says, but dear friends, Creeksiders, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Oh, see? We see the love of God clearly seen here. Because Peter's quoting from Psalm 90, and the suggestion by some scholars is, is that uh, what he's saying is that to God, man, a thousand years just flies by like a day. Some scholars believe that it has to do with the value of a thousand years. That every day you value every day to live for God and to love God through it. And maybe the reason that he states it both ways is to bring both of those concepts into our, our thinking and our belief system. But the key is, is he wants us to know that God isn't caught up in our space and time continuum. He, he, our time crunch doesn't bother him because every day, every day, he gives us this gift of a day that almost has the value of a thousand years. And how do you see it? Do you, do you embrace it that way as this daily gift from God? And then he says another key is he wants none to perish. He, he moves quickly from judgment to redemption. He says, I, I, I don't want anyone to perish. But now hear me, the corollary of that is, that doesn't mean that none will. But his desire is that none would perish, but that there would be a heart that would lead them to repentance. That this is what will ultimately, you know, that this will determine our eternal status, our response to Jesus Christ. And see, his heart, the reason when we look around and, where's God? Do you, do you ever feel this way where you just go, man, I just wish Jesus would come. Have you ever felt that? Yeah, you feeling that right now Maybe. Well, you know, I, I think I just, maybe it's because I'm just a little older. And now I just, you know, sometimes, Jesus, would you just come? Would you just kind of take me out of this stuff? And I'm sincere when I say it. It's not just kind of a, oh, well, you know, like, Lord, come quickly. But the reason he doesn't is because he wants to give every person an opportunity to experience him in eternal life. And this is kind of the central motif, patience in his coming, patience toward his coming. And I want to look at a few principles from this. Because this passage also, as we continue to read, seems to suggest that we may have a little part in bringing about his coming. And we'll look at that. See, the first century believed that Jesus would be returning soon after his ascension. In Acts chapter 2, excuse me, Acts chapter 1, 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus ascends to heaven, says goodbye to his disciples. And they're, they're talking to him, says, well, when are you coming back? 
And Jesus says to them, you know what, the, the epics and times that it's not in you to know. Just go and make disciples and reach the world, starting in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the world. And then he ascends, so he gives them the marching orders. He's not concerned. He doesn't want them concerned about when he comes back. He wants them to be aware of it and to trust in it and to know about it. But he doesn't want that to be their focus. But these people believed that Jesus was going to come back. So now we're talking 30 to 35 years later, Peter is writing, and he's writing to these people who a lot of them are dealing with, or some of them might be scoffers. Why is that? Well, because see, for them, life has been pretty tough. They've been facing persecution, and they're wondering, where's Jesus? Pull us out of here. Sometimes like us, where we just want to go, Jesus, beam me up. But a little broader application even for us in the present tense, have you ever wanted God to act and you wondered, where is he? What is he up to? Why am I facing this? Why am I going through this? What in the world is taking place? How come my situation isn't changing? And I'm going under. Doesn't he know that? There's probably not one of us here that hasn't had that thought and experienced that at some place. And if you're not careful, friends, over time, you can move from being irritated and agitated and the slow pace and process with which you believe God is working can, become, can begin to turn you into a scoffer and say, oh yeah, okay, I thought God was in my life. And instead of enduring and trusting and believing, you lose perspective in what God is ultimately doing. And that's some of what I want to talk to you about today. Because in verse 10 it says, but the Lord, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Jesus said in Matthew 24, he tells a story in the context of him talking about his coming. And he says, you know, don't, don't be like a person that doesn't understand and know about being prepared for a thief that could come. Because if you knew a thief was coming, you would be prepared. Now, Jesus isn't a thief coming, but he's going to be coming at some point. And because we don't know the day or the time, we've got to be ready. He says, on that day... Listen to this, the heavens are going to pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved in the earth and the works in it will be disclosed. Wow. That's heavy duty language. Now think about that. This was written in 65. Not 1965. But probably 65, 66 in the mid 60s AD. What kind of language is that? I read one scholar who says that that word elements almost has to do with the, what is it, the periodic timetable. And then it talks about, you know, that it's out of those elements that, you know, hydrogen and atomic bombs are made. So this is, I mean, this is, this is, this is old time stuff. And this wouldn't have made sense to them. But now think, God's at work. If God through the Holy Spirit is the one inspiring these people to write this. Oh, after 1945, this makes a lot more sense. Many of us have seen in a history class or seen on the Discovery Channel or something the effects of the bombing of Hiroshima. Things are dissolved. Things are disintegrated. Things are melted. Things are demolished. And you go, oh, ah. Verse 11, since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of person or people you should be 
in holy conduct and godliness. He's challenging me. He says, listen, it's going to happen. But until then, live with a sense of sobriety in your godliness. Not some kind of prudish Christian, but live in such a way that there's a sobriety that you know that people are watching your life. And that you live holy, separated, set apart to God in godliness, which is really ultimately God-likeness. He says, as you wait for the day of God and you hasten its coming. See, there's a phrase there. That somehow, some way, it seems like we may have a part in hastening the coming of the Lord. How in the world could we do that? God's sovereign. The Father knows the date. We don't. We can't guess. So what do we do? We'll come back to that in a minute. Well, because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. I don't know that they would have had much orientation in, to that in, 60, in the mid-60s. But based on his promise, we wait for the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. And he concludes, therefore, my dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish. <clears throat> in his sight, at peace. Have peace with God. Romans 5 talks about that. Also regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. See, Peter again underscores, highlights, emboldens. Listen, God's patience is always tied to salvation. It's about the mercy and the grace of God being exposed to people in this earth. Verse 16, he speaks about these things. and He talks about Paul speaking about all these things in his letters. There are some matters that are hard to understand, but the untaught and the unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they also do with the rest of the scripture. He's coming back to false teachers, false leaders, false prophets, saying how if they don't understand something, they'll make it sound good and twist it for their own purposes. Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard so that you are not led astray by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now into the day of eternity. I want to look at some things here that Peter wants us to remember about time and about the Lord's coming, but also just about life in general. First of all, remember what you already know while you're waiting for Christ. Peter's saying here, you get to wait, but I want to remind you of the things that you already know. That's one of the themes that Peter underscores in Second Peter. He keeps using this word. I'm going to remind you. I want you to remember. Here, loved ones, when you're going through a difficult time, if you're waiting for Jesus to come, if you're waiting for a dream to be fulfilled, if you're waiting for God to do something, lean into what you already know. When you go through a difficult season, here's one of the things that I've been doing recently is, is, is I just take out a journal and I started writing down what's two or three or four things that I know, that I know, that I know, even if I don't feel it, if I don't see it, what do I know? You know what's interesting? Is I write down these two or three or four things once or twice a week maybe, and you know what I find out? I go, oh, I know that. No, I, I, learned that. I thought I learned that lesson four years ago. And all of a sudden, God says, no, 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 I'm reminding you. Lean in to what you know. And that's exactly what Peter's saying here in those first four abuses. Verses, by way of reminder, I got nothing new for you. Jesus is coming back. 
Trust it. Believe it. You may not see it, but live as though you might see it. Secondly, determine to be comfortable with the pace of God's work in your life. You have to determine in our lives. Whenever you're, whenever you're out of sorts and, and, and dealing with, with the issue of pace and patience in your life, here's what you got to do. You've got to ask the question, are there issues in my life or actions or decisions that I've brought about this problem? Or is this just something that I have no control over because how you deal with it, well, you'll deal with it differently. If it's your issues, you've got to own them and take responsibility for them and deal with them and make them right or get through them. And ask God, how can I work through this? Because if you don't do that, you'll get really discouraged and disillusioned. You know what you want to do? You want to quit. And then pretty soon you'll become like a scoffer. Because you look around, you're in a difficult marriage, and you'll say, well, the old guy, he's never going to change. You know? My little bride, she's, there's no hope. And pretty soon you'll begin to scoff and go forget it, and you'll give up. You'll give up on the marriage, you'll give up on your spouse, you'll give up on God, and you'll begin to blame him. Maybe some of us are single in this room. You're single, but you want to be married. Be patient with his pace. Don't take shortcuts. The people that I've seen in my years here and, and students that I had in my youth ministry that grew up, the ones that didn't take shortcuts and they did it the right way were always the ones that were ultimately blessed, even though they thought, man, is this, is this, is this thing ever going to come about? Trust God. When you're in this place, I would recommend reading the life of Joseph. He was forgotten. Remember, he's, the, he's this little teenage kid that comes and says, you know what, God's going to do this great thing. And he goes to his brothers that are all older than him. And he says, you know what, you're going to bow before me. That did not make them happy. It brought a lot of jealousy. So what do they do? They end up selling him to a caravan. They got rid of him. Go back and they tell their dad, he's dead. Hey, look at his, look at his coat. He's sold into slavery. And they don't hear from him for decades. And then through that time, Joseph, as this little teenage boy, he says, God, you, you, they were going to bow. And then he goes through this process, and what takes place? Well, he gets, he, he, God raises him up to be the second command for Potiphar. He's working in his house, and then his wife accuses him of rape. He gets thrown in the dungeon in jail. He helps some guys in jail, and they forget to tell who helped. And he gets stuck there, and then he gets out, and he has more problems. And finally, through all these decades, you know what he does? He doesn't get embittered. He doesn't scoff, and he doesn't blame God. He just keeps on going. And he, he, I don't know that he was ever comfortable with God's face, but he, he somewhere said, I'm going to live within the context of it. And what happens? Finally, God raises him up and uses him. And he's able to say in Genesis 50, verse 10, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. But it took decades. And he stayed by the stuff. And he worked with God's pace. Thirdly, live, your, live ready. Live ready to see Jesus. Be on guard and live with a quality of life that pleases the Lord. He says in verse 11, since all these things will happen, it is clear what sort of people you ought to be. Be holy in conduct and godliness. What is holy? It's, it's this word, you know, we think you can't. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. You know what it is? It's being separated from the world 
him separated unto God. What do we mean separated? We, we don't live like the world. We, we live like Jesus Christ would. To the best of our ability, we're growing to become more like Jesus. Let me crowd you for a moment. What's the quality of your life right now? If the Lord were to return, would you be confident? Would you feel good and say, Lord, here I am? Are you, are you ready to say, Lord, I hope you're happy with all of my activities, my actions, my conduct, my words, my thought life. Are you ready to present your life to Jesus Christ right now? Because Peter's challenging them. He says, when you're in this waiting season, use it to develop character and the quality of your life. Don't become, oh, whatever. He's not coming. It doesn't matter if I grow. I can let this slip. I can let that slide. I, you know, I got lots of time. No, Peter's challenging them. Be on guard. What's the quality of your life? I, I, I used to mow the lawns here. We had this big John Deere. I love the John Deere. It's one of those things. I could get on it, and I could mow the lawns, and they would look good, and I could go, wow, that's done. It's one of the few things that I could ever do around here that was done. I could drive up the next day, oh, that's beautiful, green grass. I could go out there on that big John Deere and just drive in space. Well, one day I took a shortcut, and I said, you know what, I'm not, I had these two big bags on the back that the grass went into. I'm not going to empty the bags this time. So I drove it into the shed back there, turned it off, and just left. It's probably two or three weeks later, I'm thinking, that I went back. I walked in there, and, and I, I stuck the key in and kind of leaned over on the seat because I was, I was just going to turn it on and get it going, and all of a sudden, this mouse goes skirting by on the seat. And now, there's a couple of things I don't like. I don't like rodents, and I don't like snakes. Okay? I mean, just... I don't care if they're a gardener snake, um, uh, a, a Minnie Mouse, Mickey Mouse. I just don't like them, okay? <laughs> and so as I see this one there, and it goes by, and I go, oh, great. I start looking in the shed. Is there any more of these varmints around? Coast is clear. So I jump on the tractor, and I, I, I turn it on, and I get off it again, and, uh, and all of a sudden another mouse runs by. I go, oh my goodness, they're all over, you know? So I open, I, I, I go back and I look at the grass that's pretty full. I open it up and there's a family in there. Not a family, I guess, more like a community. And there's all these little ones. And I, and I just go, oh man, what am I going to do? So I went and got some gloves. And then I got a brick and I smashed them. And I'm kidding. Because I know some of you are thinking right now, you are the worst man in the world. And um, I did not kill him because I can't, it's, I don't like to kill things. What I did was, is I closed that thing up as quickly as I could and, took the, and I took the bags over to the dump, to the little bin we have over here, and I opened the lid with my gloves and got them out so they scamper away and then I emptied the things. Here's the point. When you take shortcuts, when you don't take care of stuff, uh, things can reproduce in your life. They can begin to accumulate, and you have to deal with them. Because if you don't, you know what? You're not going to look real good, because you're going to have all of these little varmints in your life that are just kind of growing. 
and taking over. And God says, I, I want you to live with this quality of life. Dame, James Stewart, Dr. James Stewart is a professor of theology at Edinburgh University. He said it well. The greatest threat to Christianity is not atheism, communism, humanism, or materialism. The greatest threat to Christianity is Christ followers trying to make it to heaven incognito without ever sharing their faith, without ever becoming involved in the most significant work God is doing on planet Earth in and through his church. Loved ones, when you're going through these times and you feel like God is not there or he's, you're impatient with what's taking place, use it to develop your character. Use it to grow in the life of Christ. Don't take shortcuts. Don't take a que sera, sera attitude. Here's the last thing I'm going to do. I'm not going to get to I'm going to deal with this one. God's delays are often acts of mercy. I love this. Because see, everybody sees God as this big, bad, judging person. You know what he is? The expression of who he is is love. But I don't ever want you to forget about his wrath because I believe his love changes us. You know when I came to Christ? I came to Christ in 1978 when, when the, the big book at that time in the mid-70s was this book called Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth. And my parents were telling me about this because they had just come to Christ. Now, that kind of, it kind of refocused me to see, wow, there's going to be an end coming. And I was only, you know, 17, 18 then. But what drew me to him was his love. It's probably why I don't preach a lot of hellfire and damnation. Because ultimately, God's love drew me to him. But there was this reality that I knew he was coming. And we can't forget that. Because here in this passage... We see it says a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. The day will come. But this delay, his patience is an expression of his mercy and his grace. And Peter is saying as much, telling them to be patient because his delay is for a higher purpose. His delay is for a greater plan. You know what it is? It's for salvation. It's for redemption of humanity. God, day... Every day that he doesn't come, every day that we don't see the prophetic time clock move forward, he's giving men the opportunity and women to get right with him. It says in the day of Noah, my spirit, God said, he said, my spirit will not always strive with man. And he said that as he began to move toward the judgment of the people on that day. And there comes a time, loved ones, we can't forget when his long suffering is expended and the day of opportunity of grace and mercy will be over for people, and they will have to face the wrath of God. Don't people scoff at that today? How could a loving God ever? Why would a loving God ever? There's no way a loving good God could. And we're so imperfect, aren't we, as people and parents, but I mean, you know, most of us understand the importance of good discipline responsibility and accountability with our own kids. Why would God, who's the perfect parent, be any different? It's his character. And we can never disassociate his love with his ultimate wrath. And people scoff today. You know, oh yeah, when's Jesus coming? You know, we hear about this, you know, Harold Camping, oh, 2011. Well, I don't know. I don't know when he's coming. You know what I can tell you? Here's what I believe. We're, we're, we're closer. 
okay? Every day, we're getting closer. That's what I know. I'm not farther away. We're moving closer. And that's what Jesus wants to remind us. That's what Peter wants to remind us of. You know, my grandmama, she used to remind me, hey, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. We used to go to the little Oregon City Four Square before I started school. Jesus is coming. You know, and I could go, well, okay, Grandma Riley, what's the deal? He hasn't come yet. Oh, he's coming. And I remember that. Bud Woods, who is the founder of what's become a fine home for the mentally challenged children and adults, it was called the Shepherd's Home based on Jeremiah 23, 4. Uh, the, the, Jeremiah said that, that God's going to raise up shepherds. So Bud, Bud Wood wanted to develop shepherds of people that, that really helped and provide vocational and educational and residential opportunities for adults and children with these intellectual um, disabilities. He wanted to help them attain appropriate independence with fulfilling jobs and lives. And that was his whole focus for starting this. Uh, well over 50 years ago. There the staff is committed to the truth that they want to share Jesus to every person there that comes. In whatever diminished capacity they come in, they want them to know that Jesus loves them, that Jesus died and gave his life for them, and that Jesus is going to come back someday for them. Bud was taking a friend and some people on a tour of it uh, one day, and they're walking through, and they're going through there, and he's showing them everything, and they're asking questions, and one of the questions that finally came up is, is says, Bud, what's the biggest difficulties you have here? What's the, you know, the kind of the, the, the tough points? And he goes, ah, you know, it's this, that, and the other, and then he just kind of chuckled, and he said, you know, and, and, the, and the maintenance upkeep on the windows is incredible. And the guy goes, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, we have really taught our constituency, our children, our adults here, that Jesus loves them, and he's coming for them. And he says, it wouldn't be unusual, I wouldn't be surprised as we walked through here that you didn't see a man or a woman or a little child with the curtains pulled back, and they got their face pressed against the window, and they got their little fingers up there looking, and they're looking up into the sky, as to Jesus coming back today. And I read that story, and I thought, wow. Do I have that kind of anticipation? Does that shape my life so that every day I get up and I go, Jesus, is this the day when we begin to see the things that are going to bring to place your coming? See, this is what John said. First John chapter 3, he says this, Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, when he comes... We will see him like he is because we, excuse me, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And get this, everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. Did you know that the more I'm looking out the window and wondering if this is the day, if Jesus is coming and I'm ready for that, you know what? I become more like him because it shapes, it kind of slaps the slack out of my spiritual sails because I understand I want to be more like him. And I know when he comes, not only will I get to experience the fullness of the love of God, but judgment's coming. And I want to I be like one of these little children that's looking, waiting, anticipating, hoping, being purified. Hear me, loved ones. God is not slack in his promises, but his expression of patience and waiting is a virtue of grace and mercy. And Peter is saying, 
God has strategies and plans that we're not aware of, but they're for the betterment of you and you, you and humanity. Today, do, do some of you know someone that hasn't crossed the line of faith? Maybe it's you. Maybe you haven't crossed the line of faith today. Or think of it in these terms. Imagine if Jesus would have come in 2011. How many of you would have faced his wrath? If Jesus would have come in 1992, how many in this room would have potentially faced his wrath because you didn't have a relationship with him? I've said this for years. I believe you and I are here, loved ones, for one reason. Not here in this room, but here in this life. For one reason. Let me give you two reasons. To grow in Jesus and to go for Jesus. Why else would we be here? Is it to accumulate more stuff, get a bigger home? Raise kids? Get a larger portfolio? None of those things are wrong. But is that your purpose? No. Our purpose is to work and to cooperate and to be a light and a, shine, a shining light in a dark world so that Jesus can be seen. Because there's wrath to come. That doesn't mean we go out there with our tracks necessarily. We don't beat people with a Bible. But we share the narrative of what God has done in our life and the narrative of who he is and what he's done for humanity. Why? Because he doesn't want one person to perish. I can, almost, I, mean, I can almost see God up there. Can't you just see the Lord who's sitting at the right hand of him and he's going, Father, is it now? No. A week later, Father, it's been a long time. People are waiting. Not now. But then there's going to come a day. And he's going to go, son, now. That's it. How do we hasten the day? Here's the only way that I can think of it. I don't think we can change God's mind by praying about it. I don't think being a better person is going to bring it. Here's what I think hastens the day. That when God looks down and he says, okay, that's it. People that are going to respond are responding. It's time. Why do people respond? It's usually because of someone like you or me stepping into their life. Here's the big challenge for today and this week and into the next season. I want you to write down a person or two that can be a mercy prayer for you. Who do you know that's far from God? Who do you know that will face God's wrath if they don't come to him? This is not guilt. We can't make anybody do it, but we can sure be available to assist and to help so that we can say, I did my best, I was ready. I am embarrassed to tell you, but I have been so passive in the last year in terms of my, my reaching out and sharing life and faith in Jesus with people. And I can give you a reason, 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 but it's an excuse. 
if I really believe what I just told you. God's given us a relate, every one of us a relational orbit. I want to encourage you for the next minute or two to say, Lord, who would you have me write down? Most of us wouldn't have a hard time doing that. But I want to challenge you to write them down. There's a line there in your notes. It's two lines. Who could you begin to pray for and say, Lord, I'm going to be ready. I'm going to be patient and I'm going to be ready to just be able to step into their life at any point. Take a moment. Who would that be for you? Proximity produces passion. Prayer will produce passion for these people. Would you stand with me? Would you just bow your heads with me for a moment as we close? possible people in this room, maybe there's somebody here today that you've not crossed the line of faith and you've just been waiting for an opportunity. And I would invite you today to say yes to Jesus Christ and to say, Lord, I want to follow you. And I don't usually use this language or this verbiage, but today it fits. Maybe you say, I don't want to face your wrath. I want to experience your love. And the ultimate expression of love is is responding to somebody else's love and especially someone like Jesus who gave his life for you to die for your sins. And if that would be you today, I'd invite you to just simply say, Jesus, today I make a decision to follow you. I ask you to forgive my sins and lead me to become the godly person that is just God-like. And I want to follow you today. That's how it starts. And I would invite you to do one or both things. Number one, that you would, if you came with somebody, you would tell them as you leave, today I, I made that decision. Scripture says that a man believes in his heart, a woman believes in her heart, and confesses with her mouth. Or you could, and or you could just write on your connection slip today, I made a decision to follow Jesus. And let us know so we can pray for you. But the second part is who can you touch? begin to pray for this week for Jesus Christ. Father, we come today. We don't know the hour, we don't know the time, but we want to live with a sense of patience and sobriety, spiritual sobriety, that you have us here for purpose and destiny. While nice homes and good cars and nice bank accounts are all wonderful things to have and you're not against them, Lord, never let those pursuits trump the ultimate pursuit to live for you and to help others find you. I thank you, Lord, for a church that is committed to that, even when their pastor doesn't remind of the importance or live out the importance of that. Bring us back, Lord God, to be on mission for your high calling and purposes. Thank you that you loved us, you redeemed us, and you're patient with us, and we give thanks in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Amen. Lord bless you. You're loved. Have a great day.